Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. Welcome back, welcome to, welcome now. (laughs) Whether this is your first episode or your 33rd time listening, thank you so much for joining me again or just for your first time. Thank you so much. I just want to say my numbers of listeners are rising and I'm very thankful for all of your support. I'm so thankful to everybody who listens to my podcast. I hope one day to be able to do this full time because it takes around 20 to 30 hours a week to produce an episode. Uh, And I also have another job, which I work sometimes four to five, six times a week. So I can, you know, live in a house, eat food, and of course, afford to buy all those true crime books I use for research for the cases I cover. In short, I'm burning the wick at both ends over here, and I will probably be taking a couple weeks off of the podcast, either sometime this year, maybe around Christmas or uh, in January. So uh, not long, maybe two or three weeks, and I will let you know when I do that. I am just... I'm tired. I'm tired. But know that the best way to support me is to give Hell No a good rating and review and share with all of your friends. So if you haven't rated or reviewed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please take a moment to do that. It really helps me so much. As much as my other job keeps me social and I have great coworkers and a good boss, I I really want to focus on my podcast full time and maybe even start putting together my fiction crime thriller novel. I've got some pieces. I um I just need more time to flesh it out and by more time I mean years. <laughs> but trust me, I've got a plot and I just need a few years and maybe I can hammer this book out. Anyways, enough about me, enough about me. This week's case is about the 2019 murder of Kevin Bacon. No, before you jump on Google and seeing if the guy from Footloose is dead, no, it is not, it is not that Kevin Bacon. It is a 25-year-old man. He was 25 in 2019 from Michigan. He, uh, he was a hairstylist. Actually, his dad said he named him Kevin Bacon because when Kevin was born, the actor Kevin Bacon wasn't as popular, wasn't as famous yet. Um, And Kevin Bacon's dad is named Carl Bacon and he wanted to keep the initials the same, KB. And he just really liked the name Kevin. So that's how Kevin got his name. He wasn't named after the actor or anything like that. I remember hearing about this case when it was unraveling a few years ago. So let's talk about it. Let's get into this. October 10th, 2019 in Shawasi County, Michigan. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, USA, America. Police receive a phone call from a man. I will refer to as C. I will refer to this man as C. This is not his real name. It was blanked out in one source I read, but not in another. So I'm just going to use this alias. He's a 48-year-old man from New York. C calls the police and he is frantic and explains to police that he has just escaped a man's basement where he was being held captive. 
He is having a hard time telling police exactly where he is, but he is running down the road and sees a barn. He tells them he sees a barn. They're like, what do you see? What are some landmarks around you? Is there a house? Just like give us anything to go off of here. And he was like, yeah, I, I see a barn. So, And he is begging them to send a police car to pick him up. He tells the 911 operator that he met a guy at a bus station. They went out for a drink. He's not sure if he was drugged, but he woke up chained up in the guy's basement and he got away using a butcher knife to cut through the leather straps um, that had connected his ankles to the chain so I believe he was hanging upside down the leather strap wrapped around his ankles and then connected to a chain what is uh kind of wild is that he could get access to this butcher knife what I just, what what kind of scene is, is, is he painting there? Because he's telling them, yeah, I've got this knife. He took the knife with him when he escaped because he was like, if this crazy guy comes after me who chained me up in his basement, I'm going to have to use this knife. But anyways, he was hanging there and he freed himself with this butcher's knife. He somehow, it must have been around him in arm length proximity to grab it, which is just absolutely terrifying because what was what was the next step if he never escaped? Police eventually find the man and give him a ride to a gas station. At that time, the man doesn't want to press charges. And for some reason, police are like, okay, bye. Which <laughs> just blows my fucking mind. Did they not learn anything from the Dahmer case. I I don't know. I'm just there's a lot of similarities in this case you're going to see. Eventually a year later it comes out that C had met the man who uh chained chained him up in the basement on a dating app or online. It didn't say the specific dating app used. And he went to Michigan to meet up with this man to have sex with this man but ended up chained up in the man's basement we know this because in 2020 in 2020 c ended up filing a civil lawsuit against the man but due to some court related issues it was thrown out but there is a possibility in the future that c can refile the civil lawsuit in the future so it didn't get thrown out permanently there was just some court related issues I think dealing with his lawyer or something like this not sure it didn't go through nothing has gone through on that yet let's go back to 2019 though C escapes from his chains he gets out of the house uh, he is running down the road in a rural area he's got this butcher knife in his hand uh, he sees a barn, there's, he's, there's fields around everywhere, and luckily police find him. But nobody looks into the situation. Nobody goes to the man's house that he had just escaped from. Nothing ever happens from that. A month later, okay, one month later. Yes, you are hearing me correctly when I say this next part. One month later, November 25th, 2019. Police receive a phone call, and it is an extremely similar call to the one they received just one month before. The 911 dispatcher answers a call, and on the other end is a man, frantic and sounds like he's running. He's out of breath. The man says, I'm running away from some creepy guy. He had me tied up in his basement. The dispatcher says, I'm sorry, what's that? The man says, 
this time adding in a little more detail. He says, I've escaped from a creepy guy that has had me chained up in his basement. The man says he is on the road. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't even have shoes on. The dispatcher can see that the the um, caller is calling from Tyrell Road and sends officers down the road to look for him. The dispatcher also asks if the guy can run to someone's house for help. And the guy does. He makes it to a house. You can hear dogs barking and the dispatcher asks, you know, what's the address? And he responds, they won't tell me. The reason he says they won't tell me is because the neighbor had opened the door to a frantic man screaming for help, saying he wants to hurt me. This man is covered in blood. He's got purple hair. He's wearing a leather kilt with leather belt strapped around his chest. No shirt, no no shoes. It was cold. Like you do not go out in Michigan in November without shoes. And this man was frantic and he was scared, which probably made the neighbor scared. Remember, this is a small rural town in Michigan. This area is... This is an area of farming and hunting, so this site would have been absolutely wild for this neighbor. Terrifying for everyone involved. So you can see why the neighbor was a bit apprehensive to give out any information. He didn't know what was going on. He was like, um, could this... He didn't know. Later, the neighbor tells his story, saying that when police were coming to get the scared bloody guy who had escaped, the captor showed up in his driveway in a car wearing the same leather kilt with the same leather straps around his chest, no shirt, no shoes, no service, no, just kidding, and a braided beard. But before this, during the call, the dispatcher had asked asked the man, like, do you see anything? Do you know where you are? And the man on the phone says, oh yeah, I see a white house across from a barn. He tells them the same detail that C had told them a month earlier, saying, I see a barn. The frantic man eventually finds a mailbox with the address and reads it off to the dispatcher and says he is on the road. He gives them the address on the mailbox. Then I can hear knocking in the call, like the man is knocking on the door of the home, of the neighbor's home, and the dogs are barking again. This time I can hear someone else talking in the background of the call, I believe this is when the neighbor started talking to the guy, realizing he is on the phone to police or whatever, I don't know. And maybe by this time, this is when the captor had showed up. And maybe it was even his voice in the background because he was like, I don't want to hurt him. I just want to get my leather kilt back. Yikes. The dispatcher asked the caller if he knows where the house is is at that he escaped from and the man says about a mile down the way then the caller says he sees the police coming and sounds incredibly relieved and that's when the call ends but not before the dispatcher says point out to the police the house you came from no charges were ever laid and no investigation came from this incident ever ever This man remained anonymous in every article I read. It's possible the guy never wanted to be identified. Maybe he has a wife. Maybe he's not openly gay or bisexual. I don't know his reasons, but he didn't want to be known for being involved in this incident. And yeah, his identity was kept secret in every article, every source. Nobody, nobody knows who this guy is, okay? So again, we have another man who escapes 
from chains in a basement on the same road uh, that uh, a month before somebody else who had escaped, both men, call police one month apart. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, But nobody was investigated. There was no arrests. Nothing happened from any of this. Why this didn't raise huge red flags, I don't know. It is clear there is a man who is chaining men up in his basement and these men keep escaping and calling police for help. And police are like, oh, we got another one. Yep, on Tyrell Road. Yep, by the barn. Like what? Okay, maybe we should uh, check this out. Police should know the man who is doing this and they should, they do know the man who is doing this. Not they should, they do. Uh, they should also know that crimes like this tend to escalate into worse crimes. Um, but yet nothing is done. It's unclear if the captor met the second man on a dating app, but the man did tell the dispatcher that he was not from that area. So it is highly probable they did meet online. And given what happens next, I would say it's safe to say dating apps and online dating was this was the captor's hunting ground. Another month goes by and this brings us to December 24th, Christmas Eve day. 25-year-old Kevin Bacon lives in Swartz Creek, Michigan, where he is a hairdresser at a salon near his house. He had work that day and finished in the afternoon. He saw his mother and sister and he did their hair. After talking to them about the holiday dinner, they had plans that evening for like a family dinner they were having that night. He decided against joining them, uh, but said that he would be there in the morning for Christmas breakfast. They had a breakfast at 9 a.m., and he would be there for that. Kevin Bacon, he was having a bad day and he decides to jump on Grinder in hopes of scoring a hookup, a little date for the night. He ends up on the profile of a 50-year-old man named Mark Latunsky. Mark has a really nice home, not far from where Kevin lives in Michigan, and they arrange a hookup for that night, which is, like I said, Christmas Eve, December 24th, 2019. Kevin leaves his house around 5 p.m. headed to meet Mark. I'm not sure if he told family and friends who he was going to meet, but his housemate knew he was going on a grinder date. She did know that. Kevin was planning to move to Chicago, but he could never seem to gather enough finances to make the move. The town he lived in, he felt didn't offer what he wanted from life. He was young. There wasn't a prevalent gay community in his town. It was, there was only 5,500 residents, a very small rural farming town in Michigan. He was looking for more in a, more of an alternative surroundings. He liked to dye his hair purple and he was naturally flamboyant and probably just wanted to build a friend group who, he, you know, who had similarities and also build his portfolio in the salon. Kevin had a hard time over the years and he had attempted suicide in the past. He had also caused self-harm by cutting himself up pretty badly and he had been in and out of psychiatric care. He was depressed, he was looking for love, but it never seemed to work out how he how he wanted it to. He often used Grinder and other dating apps, but nothing sinister had ever happened before. Just failed connections and heartbreak. So he didn't really think anything bad would happen that night even though he was going to a stranger's home in a rural area alone. 
He leaves his apartment that night around 5 p.m., an apartment he shares with his friend Michelle Myers, and he even texts Michelle at 6.12 p.m. So one hour and 12 minutes later after he left, Michelle gets a text from Kevin, and the text reads that he's probably not going to come home. He's having fun. So she's like, that's great. That's wonderful. He's having a great time. Awesome. So she thinks all is good. But then the next day, his family grows concerned when he doesn't show up for Christmas morning breakfast. They get into, they, you know, they're, they're calling him. Okay, so they're calling his phone, no answer. Immediately they're like, okay, something is wrong. This is worrying because he's usually very, very good with his phone and calling people back and texting and social media and all that stuff. But it, um, yeah, no one was answering the phone. They get in touch with Michelle. Michelle tells them that she last saw Kevin the night before leaving to go meet up with a guy he had met on Grindr. By the afternoon, his father was worried and contacted police. Kevin's car was found in Swartz Creek in a parking lot. Inside the car was his phone. Also inside was his wallet. And in the back seat was, was his clothes that he was wearing the night before. Uh huh. So that's already, um, that's already pretty telling. The car keys were nowhere to be found. So all of that stuff was in the car, his wallet, his phone, his clothes, but no keys. Police managed to get into Kevin's phone and went onto his grinder account to see who he had been talking to and possibly meeting up with. And uh, there they find he had been talking to Mark Latunsky. So I couldn't find exactly the messages they seen between Mark and Kevin. I actually heard in one source that quite a few of the messages had been deleted. I'm not sure how Grindr works. If one person deletes the messages, I'm not sure if they all, if you know, the messages leave the chat in both parties messages, I'm not sure. But I'm going to go out on a limb here and say there was nothing too damning because they don't immediately go to Mark's house looking for Kevin. Why didn't they immediately go to Mark's home on Tyrell Road? I will never know. The next three days, Kevin's family and friends and police looked for him. They formed search parties and searched the rural area, which means they had a lot of ground to cover. They searched the railway lines, fields, bushes, but nobody found anything. The family went to the media to see if they might be able to help by drawing attention to it and hope someone would know something and shed some kind of light on where Kevin is or if when they had last seen him, just more information. But like I said, I would think a good starting point would have been the home on Tyrell Road where two men had previously escaped on two separate occasions within the last three months after meeting the man who lived there on dating apps online and then been chained up in the basement. Uh, I think, I don't know. I don't know why police knew about this. They had picked up those men previously. They knew about this home on Tyrell Road. But you know, I'm no detective, so. Eventually, police do decide to check out that house on the night of December 27th. So multiple sources say different things. Some say December 27th, some say December 28th, where I think the confusion 
coming from here is it was really late on December 27th. So maybe it was after midnight. So technically it's December 28th. I'm not really sure, but December 27th slash 28th, that's when police go over to the home on Tyrell Road. They had no idea what they were going to find, but you know, it was worth a look. Finally, they put their detective hats on and they're like, let's go check out this basement. They knock on the door of the home in the rural area on Tyrell Road. Finally, this home is beautiful. It sits on five acres. It's got plenty of privacy. It looks like a mini mansion. It's modern and fresh looking. It's a huge yard. Absolutely stunning. It's like out of a fairy tale. But in actuality, it's more like out of a nightmare. The home belongs to 50-year-old Mark Latunsky. The same man that two other men had previously escaped from. The same man last talking to Kevin on Grinder. The same man Kevin was going to meet up with on Christmas Eve. So who is Mark Latunsky? Mark Latunsky was divorced from his wife since 2013, who he had four kids with. He had a good job at one point, making up to about $100,000 a year. He had this gorgeous home. He has a degree in chemistry. Uh, but in recent years, his mental health had been on the decline since about 2010, 2012, when he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, borderline personality traits, and a myriad of other mental health issues. Mark's ex-wife claims he had not been taking his medication in the past, so I'm thinking it's possible he wasn't taking them during this time. It seems very, very probable. She actually went into detail about things he would do when he was off of his medication, and yeah, it, it lines up. After his divorce from his wife, he married a man who will remain anonymous here because he is desperately trying to distance himself from Mark. Uh, Mark and his husband married, but they split up in 2019 in September, which I thought perhaps triggered Mark to start chaining men up because one month after they split up, that's when the first man fled the home on Tyrell Road calling police for help um, that he had been chained up in Mark's basement. Mark's ex-husband says Mark had been acting very strange, saying things of the paranoid nature, like his water was being poisoned, his biological family wasn't his, his kids weren't his, just constant paranoid delusions. Mark's ex-husband had actually seen Mark two days after Christmas and dropped Mark off at his house. At Mark's house, not not his ex-husband's house. His ex-husband had moved out. Okay, so his ex-husband says, Mark was not acting anxious or nervous at all. In fact, he was seemingly normal. But little did his ex-husband know was that when he dropped him off, there was a body in Mark's basement. Mark had even asked his ex-husband like, oh, do you want to come in? And his ex-husband was like, no, I, I have to work in the morning. And Mark was like, okay, bye. What? Uh, what would have happened if his ex-husband would have went into that home? Thankfully, we will never know. This brings us to the night police came to Mark's home after Mark's ex-husband dropped him off, December 27th. Police knock on Mark's door and Mark calmly answers it wearing a leather kilt. 
Police ask if they can come in and search his home. He agrees. Police start looking around. Mark is calm as hell. He is like, yeah, cool, man. They go into the basement where they are met with a grisly scene. In the basement, police find the body of 25-year-old Kevin Bacon hanging from the ceiling, strung up by his ankles. This next part is gruesome. Yes, this is your warning. Police enter the basement and find Kevin in a secret room. He had been murdered. It appeared that he was attacked and killed on Christmas Eve. And that makes me wonder if it was Mark who sent Michelle that text message from Kevin's phone saying, I'm not going to be home and I'm having fun. Mark admits he stabbed Kevin in the back and then slit his throat. He also admits to hanging Kevin's body from the ceiling in the basement and told police that he had plans for Kevin's body. His plans included using the blood and bone as a fertilizer and making human jerky out of the meat from Kevin's body. This statement was later solidified when police discovered Mark had bought a dehydrator online and it hadn't arrived yet. It actually arrived in the post a few days after Kevin's body was discovered in Mark's home. The most gruesome discovery in this case was that Mark had cut off Kevin's testicles, fried them, and ate them. This is why Mark is known as a cannibal. Mark willingly told police all of this when they discovered Kevin in his basement. He wasn't hiding anything, although he did tell police that Kevin wanted him to kill him. Kevin had plans the next day. He had plans for the future. It doesn't add up. He wasn't acting strange to family and friends before his date. I don't believe this was a planned assisted suicide at all. When I speak about this murder, I need to add in the word allegedly for one reason and one reason only. Mark did plead guilty, but he has yet to be, like these charges have yet to be finalized. And he hasn't been sentenced yet. So that happens in a couple of weeks from the time of this recording. I will do an update in mid-October on the sentencing. And I will talk a bit more about the court case uh, later on in this episode soon. The night of December 24th would have been terrifying for Kevin. He arrived at the Tyrell Road home. And once inside, when his back was turned, Mark stabbed him. Kevin didn't even see it coming. That's what I believe happened. I did find the story that Mark told police when they discovered Kevin in his basement, and it does explain why and how Kevin's car was not located at Mark's home, and it also explains why Kevin's clothes were in his car. But no way do I believe that Kevin ever agreed to be murdered. I do not believe that. Mark tells police that Kevin wanted to act out a sexual fantasy. Mark said he had met Kevin in that parking lot, stripped him down, put restraints Uh, on him in a blindfold, covered him up in the back of his van, and drove him to his house where they had consensual sex. That part might be true because there was no sign of a struggle at Kevin's car as far as I read in any articles. But this next part seems highly unlikely. After sex, Kevin confided in Mark he tried to commit suicide. And this is when they supposedly made an agreement that Mark would kill Kevin and use every part of his body. 
Mark says they talked about it for a while, and finally Kevin said, okay, do it. That's when he stabbed Kevin in the back of the neck, and then he didn't die immediately, and Mark didn't want Kevin to suffer, so he said that's when he slit his throat. It's impossible to know the truth here, because Mark could have been suffering from a psychotic break during this time, and he may actually believe that was happening when, in fact, that's not at all what Kevin was saying or agreeing to, um, although in court, he did not use an insanity plea, so that must have been ruled out. Either way, it's murder and dismemberment and cannibalism. We know that Mark has tried to chain up and hurt other men. We know this because they escaped, so I'm not totally buying his story here at all. A few days after Kevin was found, his family held his funeral on January 3rd. Kevin's hair and makeup looked beautiful at his ceremony, and also the same day they held a candlelight vigil in the evening for him at the high school he had graduated from in his town. 100 of Kevin's family and friends came to mourn their loss. Friends painted a memorial for him. They brought him balloons that his mother released into the night sky. One was a giant unicorn. They talked about all of the good memories they had of Kevin, and they reminisced on his outgoing and beautiful personality. A YouTuber by the name of Jeffree Star donated $20,000 to Kevin's funeral and tweeted this. Devastated to hear of the passing of somebody from Michigan who lived their life fearlessly and was taken too soon. Also, the celebrity Kevin Bacon uh, from, I think it was, he was an invisible man, wasn't he? And Footloose for sure. He also expressed his condolences to the family on Instagram. Let's talk about what's happening in the court case now. In an article published in February of this year, being 2022, it read that the judge ordered Mark Latunsky to undergo another psychiatric evaluation to see if he was competent to stand trial. In 2020, so two years earlier, he was assessed and found incompetent to stand trial. When being held in jail, Mark would go on hunger strikes, and he was even found unresponsive in his cell, but he was quickly treated and recovered from that. Then in an article I found published this month, it stated he was found to be competent of standing trial, and this is when he pled guilty on September 22nd, 2022, just a couple weeks ago. He pled guilty to the charges of open murder, meaning they still need to decide if it's for first degree or second degree murder, and also pled guilty to mutilation of a body. So he has pled guilty for murder. We just don't know in what degree. But we will have to wait until October 18th to see what murder charge he gets. And then after that, the sentencing. In an episode on this case done by Big Mad, which is a true crime podcast hosted by Heather Ashley, which is a fabulous podcast, by the way, and you should check it out. She reports that in the years after Mark's divorce with his wife, uh, they had some trouble dealing with custody of the children. And that actually, there was some court happenings with that it got really messy but in a weirder incident uh, around this same time one day mark went to police and said his name was william gregory dean and that he had killed a man named mark latunsky with 
the stroke of a pen. So um, basically he went to police and told police that he had killed himself. Mm, uh So police were like, oh, okay. And they went to do a check at Mark's home just to make sure there were no dead bodies or something. But when they got there and they entered the home, the kitchen was covered in letters. And these letters read about a curse and breaking the curse and just a lot of curse stuff. I don't know what's happening there. A lot of curse stuff. Maybe that's what he means by he killed Mark Latunsky with the stroke of a pen. Maybe in Mark's mind, he had written about a curse and then broke the curse and then he was no longer him. Who knows what was going on in his head? Police couldn't find Mark though. So they go into the, they go into Mark's home. Nobody's there. There's just all these letters talking about curses, breaking curses, curse, curse, curse. So they went to the vacant house next door. And I wonder if Mark was making noise over there to like draw their attention or something because police don't usually do this. It seems very thorough for them. I mean, if you look at the events that happened years after this involving Mark, the police never checked his basement when those two men escaped saying that they were chained down there. So I don't know. Anyways, okay, back to the story. The police go over to the vacant home and upstairs they see Mark laying on the floor pretending to be dead. Police are like, hey man, cut the shit. We know it's you and we know you're not dead. Mark jumps up and he's like, ha ha. Well, I'm a protected person and I want to know the truth. And they're like, what? Then he tells police his children are being poisoned by his brother-in-law who attached a lead filled bladder to his home. So again, if this, if this is relating to the water being poisoned, he was very paranoid. He was being poisoned. The, the strange encounters with Mark continued, okay? They did not, this was just a drop in the bucket. A year later after that incident, they found him walking through the streets completely naked. Well, sorry, let me retract that. He wasn't completely naked. He was wearing one sock on his foot. Then, I'm not sure how many years after that was when the men started running from his basement in 2019. So I don't have an exact timeline, but I do know all of that happened before the men started escaping from his basement. The point is, Mark was in and out of psychiatric hospitals and was known to police for erratic and paranoid behavior, yet there was nothing anyone could do until it was too late. I have never covered a case before uh, that there had yet to be a sentencing, uh, but the fact that he pled guilty to the charges, I think it's safe to say he will, well, he, he will be found guilty and sentenced for a murder charge. I feel like, I feel like we're in that uh, safety zone. Uh, he will go to prison or maybe a psychiatric detention center. We don't really know this yet. We don't know, but uh, I will update everyone on this uh, mid-October. So whatever happened to Mark Latunsky's home? It was eventually sold at auction in February of 2020. The bidding started at $80,000. The person's name who bought it was never released to the media, uh, but it sold for just over $100,000. The home was valued at $93,000, which means it actually sold for above market value. I will post photos on the Hell No, a true crime podcast Instagram account. I watched a brief video of Mark Latunsky in court agreeing to statements such as he knew stabbing Kevin would lead to death or injury of Kevin at the time that he did it. 
and other statements. Uh, and I gotta say, Mark does not look well. He looks disassociated. Uh, he looks like he's on a lot of medication, but he doesn't look confused. He knows what he did. He knows what people are saying to him. He knows what he's agreeing to. He just looks very, very far away from himself. If the court records are ever released, I will do an update on this case and hopefully be able to shine more light on some details or maybe even correct some details I have gotten wrong. I did look through a lot of news articles on this. I did quite thorough research. As far as I know, all of my details are correct and I will post all of my source information as well. Kevin Bacon, he was outgoing, compassionate. He was a young man who loved styling hair, cutting hair, coloring hair. He loved his beautiful, colorful tattoos he had on his body. He also had um, a drive to help others. He was a student at Michigan University studying psychology, and he had a full life ahead of him, and he is deeply missed by his friends and family. That wraps up this week's case. Thanks for listening. Please share, rate, and review Hell No, A True Crime podcast on whichever platform you are streaming from. And don't forget to follow Hell No on Instagram at hellno underscore a true crime podcast. I do believe Mark Latunsky is an incredibly mentally ill man. And had he stayed on his meds and was monitored closely by police or doctors, none of this would have happened. The fact he willingly let police in his home and showed no signs of nervousness does make me think he didn't fully understand the weight of what he had done. Like he didn't think it was all that wrong because he didn't try to hide it, but he knew full well what he was doing. That's what makes this case so strange. But you know, he still did horrific things and he took a life that didn't belong to him. So for that, I have to give Mark Latunsky a hell no. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Bye!